going to be going to Houston, Texas for a conference. This is called the Gay Christian Network Conference, the GCN Conference. Um, this is a conference, an annual conference of both straight and LGBT Christians to get together to talk about being Christian and being LGBT and being part of a movement, the church, uh, trying to figure out um, how to include the LGBT community, what that might look like, and, and to talk about LGBT Christian issues. And so I've been a part of this now for the last three years. This is going to be my third time going. Um, and as a straight pastor, I have really um, felt like this is something too important not to participate in. Um, and so uh, I'm going to be going uh, on Wednesday. Emily's going with me, and, and some of you are going as well. And uh, today I want um, to talk about my reasoning for being affirming of same-sex relationships in greater depth and talk about the theological and hermeneutical uh, backbone or foundation behind my thinking. Hermeneutical, by the way, for, the, for those of you who aren't Bible nerds, uh, means the way that you interpret and apply Scripture. Um, and this is a hot topic. This is a topic I think a lot of you care about and a lot of you want to hear me talk about. I, I have addressed this topic before, uh, most often just kind of in passing in, in a sermon. Um, it's rare that I ever actually delve into the theological uh, reasons behind my position. Um, and so I, I want to do that. I think some of you are very interested as you are also thinking about your position and, and what you think about this this very hot topic, not just hot in the church, right? It's hot in our culture. Um, but it's particularly a hot topic in the church because um, this question, can you be gay and be a Christian? Can you be uh, same-sex relationship affirming and be a Christian? This question is really about a much bigger issue, right? It's about how we interpret and apply Scripture and understand God. So this is about that. This micro issue is really about a macro issue having to do with how we interpret Scripture and how we understand God. And so that's why this is a hot topic. Um, there tends to be uh, three different positions in the church regarding um, this issue. Uh, the Gay Christian Network has defined these positions as side A, side B, and side A. And it's helpful for you to understand um, these terms. Now, unfortunately, I don't like the language either, you know, side A, side B, side X. I don't like breaking down people's positions into sides. That sounds polemical, right? Um, but I didn't come up with it. They did. And it's a useful shorthand in what is a very, you know, complicated conversation. And so uh, side A means affirming. It means uh, that you are affirming of same-sex relationships. A could stand for affirming. It's an easy way to remember. Side B means that you think that same-sex relationships are still sinful and you believe that people with the same-sex attraction uh, should be celibate, but you can still accept them as Christians even if they are in a same-sex relationship. You can still accept them as part of your, your community, your friends, your family. You don't ostracize them. You may disagree with them, but you don't ostracize them. Side X is um, fully rejecting. You're not just... You just don't think that same-sex relationships are sinful. You don't even think that somebody who is in a same-sex relationship can be a Christian. They are to be expelled from the church. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the breakdown. Um, now, in the interest of putting all my cards on the table, I think I've already said that I'm affirming. I am side A. Um, but I grew up side X. I grew up side X. Uh, in fact, I remember... 
in the late 90s, I'm 39 now, so this is when I was in my early 20s, um, I found out that a close friend of mine who I grew up with named Dan um, was going to bars and making out with guys. And so I called him and I asked him, Dan, is this true? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, according to 1 Corinthians 5, I can't have anything to do with you because you are a brother in, in you know, immoral sin, right? And uh, he said, okay. He was very kind of nonchalant about it. Um, and we, hadn't, we didn't speak for 13 years until, um, gosh, I don't know, maybe it was five years ago, I had a change of heart, and I reached out to him on Facebook, and I apologized, and he forgave me. But I, I grew up, like so many of you, in this kind of fundamentalist tradition where, you know, gay people, you know, weren't to be in the church. And especially if you were a Christian and you were gay, that was even worse. You were to be expelled. You know, we shouldn't have anything to do with you. Um, and I remember my pastor, when he found out that I did that to Dan, and he knew Dan, um, congratulated me. And it turns out my youth, my youth pastor, granted I was in my early 20s, I was kind of like a youth volunteer, the guy who was head of the youth group found out I did it, and he actually confronted me and said, that, that's really not nice. And when the pastor, his boss, found out that he confronted me, told him, you need to go read your Bible. Aaron did what was right. And so, you know, this is the way I was raised, and I think a lot of you were as well. Um, but I changed, and that change didn't happen overnight. It took years, and it didn't happen for one reason. It happened for a few reasons. Um, and let me just be clear before we get into those reasons. I'm not here today to tell you what to think. I'm, I'm really not. Um, while I, every time I preach, I want to be persuasive. I mean, who doesn't want to be persuasive, right? But I really want to be careful and not, you know, approach this with this sort of heavy-handed mentality, you know, that if you don't agree with me, you're, you're, sin you're wrong, you're sinning, and you need to change, you know. I want to be careful about that. Um, you know, I want to be persuasive, but I'm not trying to make everybody the same and feel and think the same way in here. Um, what I want to do is tell you what I think and what other people think and let you make up your own mind. Um, I want this to be a safe place for everybody on the spectrum uh, in thinking. Um, I want this to be a place where we can you know, process um, where we're at and work through things in an atmosphere of patience and understanding and love. Because the bottom line is I haven't always been where I'm at on this issue. And people were patient and understanding and loving with me. And so I want us to maintain this, the spirit of Christ in this subject matter, this hot topic, this divisive issue. I want us to maintain a spirit of grace and love and understanding. Now before I go into my theological reasons for being affirming, I want to say that relationships played a major role in changing my mind. Um, I think it, when you have a friend or a family member who's gay, this issue is no longer just about abstract theological ideas, but it's about a person. And that really makes a difference. That really matters. And we have to keep in mind that this issue is ultimately not about theology, but it is about real flesh and blood people, and that really matters. And so while I'm going to be talking about theology here this morning, um, the truth is my friendship with a gay person really is what um, was a catalyst for change in my life. And I, I can't think of anything more theologically sound than that. Relationships and people are ultimately what theology is about. If our theology does not put people first, then it isn't worth a damn, to put it bluntly. So that being said, let's look at the scriptures because they played a major role in my journey too. There are three main theological reasons that I'm going to give you this morning for my position as affirming. Number one, 
Not everything in the Bible is the expressed heart and will of God. There are approximately six different verses in the Bible that are, you could, you could say, are anti-gay or anti-same-sex relationships. Three in the Old Testament, three in the New. There is a scholar in the Side A camp um, named Matthew Vines, who wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. I wish I had a picture of it. Um, I don't. But it's worth picking up and reading. It's, it's really, he's, he's a really good scholar. Um, he maintains that nowhere in these six texts in the Bible um, are, is it actually talking about committed, consensual, same-sex relationships, but rather the scholarship demonstrates that what, what they're talking about are things like pederasty, pedophilia, rape, and prostitution. Furthermore, Matthew Vines maintains um, that the ancients had no concept, no concept of same-sex attraction like we do. They thought that same-sex attraction um, came from excessive lust, excessive sexual desire in general. They didn't know or didn't have any concept of it being an, you know, an unchosen orientation that you have from birth. So Matthew Vines and others in the side A camp who want to maintain an inerrant view of scripture would tell you that nowhere in the Bible is it actually talking about committed consensual same-sex relationships and nowhere is it actually, nowhere is it actually talking about same-sex attraction the way we're talking about same-sex attraction. Matthew Vines does a good job. He makes a strong case, but I don't think he explains, I don't think he, it explains every text. I don't think it's as, as global or universal as, as he would like it to be. And, and for me, the bigger point is that we don't need to explain every text away uh, in order to be okay with same-sex relationships because the bottom line is the Bible's not inerrant. It's not perfect. Not everything in it is the expressed heart and will of God. For example, Deuteronomy 20, God tells the Israelites to go and commit genocide against their neighbors, to wipe them out, including put the babies in the town to the sword. Not the will of God, in this man's opinion. In Leviticus, you find God telling the Israelites to stone adulterers, stone disobedient children, stone people who break the Sabbath, stone gay people. Not the will of God. Exodus 21 says that it's okay to beat your slave to the brink of death because they are your human property, not the will of God. Paul says in 1 Timothy that women should not be allowed to teach men in the church because they are inferior spiritually, not the will of God. Um, if these things are the will of God, hypothetically speaking, then we have a moral responsibility not to worship, I would say, such a sadistic, cruel, and misogynistic deity. We have a moral responsibility not to worship that God. Now, what I just said might be a little troubling, some of you, um, that the Bible isn't perfect, but keep in mind Jesus said the same thing, in essence. In Mark 10, Jesus is confronted by some Pharisees who want to test him to see if he really respects the scriptures. And so they ask him this in verse 2. This will be up on the screen. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. Now they are quoting to Jesus here Deuteronomy 24, real scripture, where Moses says that it's okay to divorce your spouse if you find something displeasing about her as long as you give her a certificate of dismissal. Jesus knows that they're quoting Deuteronomy 4, but replies, 
In verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Just a a little sidebar real quick. This text is often used by um, anti-same-sex relationship proponents, uh, people on the side X side, or even side B sometimes, as a way of saying, look, here's proof that you know God ever wanted same-sex relationships because he says that in the beginning he made them male and female. No, actually, Jesus is using this text not to make a point about same-sex relationships, obviously. He's using it to talk about divorce. So in other words, Jesus tells them that Moses allowed them to divorce for any old reason because their hearts were hard, and these guys were going to do it anyway, and so he wanted to lay down some ground rules to protect the women's rights. So he made them give them a certificate of dismissal. And this certificate guaranteed her some rights in what was an extremely patriarchal world where women didn't have a lot of resources, agencies available to them to guarantee their survival. So Jesus uses this passage in Genesis then to tell them that it's not God's will that you should divorce your spouse for any old reason. What God has joined together, let no one separate, he says. Jesus' point here and elsewhere is clear. Not everything in the Bible is the expressed heart and will of God. Moses, Deuteronomy 24, is not the heart and will of God on divorce. And so I see the Bible as, as less of a rule book and more of this wonderful conversation that's been taking place between God and humanity for millennia. And like any conversation, it's messy. The Bible is vital and it's authoritative. Uh, but it's complicated. And it contains more than just the voice of God. And the fact is, you can pull a scripture out of the Bible to validate and back up anything you want. It's called proof texting. People have been doing it for millennia to validate and justify the most horrific acts that you can imagine. Violence, bigotry, brutality, slavery. You name it. So we need a new standard in our interpretation. We need a lens through which we read the Bible. with, And Jesus of Nazareth is that lens. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Max read that scripture earlier out of John 1. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He is the wisdom of God personified in human form. The wisdom of God sent to illuminate the scriptures for us and to reveal the heart and will of God to us. Therefore, if what we read in the Bible does not jive with Jesus, so to speak, does not measure up to the grace and love the nature of his character, then it is to be set aside. It is not to be practiced. And that goes for genocide and slavery, stoning disobedient children, stoning gay people. The list goes on. So this is one of the theological reasons why I'm affirming not everything in the Bible is the expressed heart and will of God. Number two, sin is not about breaking religious customs, but about unjustly harming others. Throughout the Bible, we find that sin is ultimately about how we live in relationship to each other. You know, things like murder, stealing, lying, adultery, selfishness, impatience, rudeness, jealousy. These things are sin, sins because they unjustly harm others and or ourselves. One of the most important things Jesus ever said, one of the most important scriptures in the Bible is when he said that the summation of the law and the prophets is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the summation of all of Scripture 
And all of biblical theology and all of its teachings on morality and ethics is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Do not unjustly harm others. Sin is not about breaking religious traditions or not keeping the religious customs. If, if it is, Jesus was the chief sinner of all. When Jesus broke the Sabbath, he broke numerous purity laws about not touching the sick, not cavorting with sinners. He broke the Mosaic law in Leviticus by not stoning that woman caught in the act of adultery, which Leviticus says you must do. Jesus said that Samaritans were children of God. This is people of another religion, religious heretics in first century Israel. Samaritans not only had different scriptures, but different rites, and they even had a different temple. Sin has nothing to do with breaking religious traditions, has nothing to do with not doing communion correctly or not baptizing people correctly or not praying right or maybe not tithing or going to church enough. Sin has nothing to do with um, not having the correct atonement theory or you know, not understanding the Trinity correctly. Or, you know. This is not what sin is about. Sin is that which unjustly harms another. And so with that in mind, I cannot look at a committed monogamous same-sex relationship and call it a sin. Who is being harmed here? I believe that promiscuity and sleeping around is sinful, be you straight or gay, because I think that inherently hurts others and ourselves, but I can't look at a committed monogamous same-sex relationship and say that it's a sin because no one's being harmed. However, I can say with confidence that telling somebody who is gay that if they enter into a same-sex relationship, they're going to hell or they can't be a Christian, that's harmful. That's sinful. I can't tell you how many gay Christians have committed suicide. Going to GCN, you hear some pretty horrific stories. Or how many gay Christians have clinical depression and a, and a litany of related maladies as a result of being raised in an environment where they are told, you're evil, you're disgusting. God abhors you. He thinks you're gross. You can't fulfill this part of who you are. You have to repress it. You have to try to become somebody else. You have to go through this exodus movement, right? That's abusive. That's sinful. That's harmful. This leads me to my third theological reasoning for um, being affirming. The question can you be gay and be a Christian, is a circumcision question. When the church began 2,000 years ago, I don't know if you know this, but it, be, it wasn't its own separate religion. Christianity did not just pop into the world spontaneously or arbitrarily. It, was, it began as a reform movement in Judaism, first century Judaism. Christianity began as a sect or a denomination within Judaism. You know, the first Christians were all Jews, like Jesus' disciples. And there was a controversy in the early church about whether or not you needed to become a Jew in order to become a Christ follower. Peter and other members of the early church, uh, specifically of the church in Jerusalem, which was like the Vatican in those days, Peter and, and the leaders there believed that the Gentiles that were coming into the church, meaning the non-Jews from Asia Minor that Paul was reaching, they had to be circumcised in order to become Christians. And this created a, a real debate in the church. Right? Paul believed that that idea was antithetical to the gospel. 
Paul believed, and rightfully so, that the gospel is about this radical new way of understanding God outside the realms of these oppressive religious traditions, and the kingdom of God is rather about this idea, or the gospel is about the kingdom of God, Paul was saying. This idea that one lives in relationship to God by living in right relationship to others. That, that the gospel and the kingdom of God is about how one lives in the world in relationship to others, practicing the teachings of Christ, love, compassion, peacemaking, justice, mercy, forgiveness. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. Christianity, according to Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was about this radical deconstruction of religion as the means by which we approach a relationship with God and this new way of understanding it through this idea of how we live in relationship to each other. And so Peter and other members of the early church eventually conceded and agreed with Paul. But it was a hot debate. And it caused some divisions. And the point I'm making is that the circumcision question never really went away. It just changed forms in church history. There, there has always been debates in the church over what religious practices and customs were necessary in order to call oneself a Christian. Over the centuries, circumcision questions uh, have taken the form of questions about communion and baptism and how, we, how are we supposed to perform that and do that correctly. You know, those who don't are on the outs, you know. Um, other questions about right beliefs, <clears throat> you know, circumcision questions about, you know, what do you have to believe in the Trinity specifically? What, what atonement theory do you have to believe in in order to be a Christian? These were all circumcision questions. The list is endless. And the circumcision question for a lot of Christians today in Western culture is, can you be gay and be a Christian? Or can you be gay-affirming? Can you be side A and be a Christian? So a lot of Christians, people I grew up with, think that I'm no longer a Christian because I am affirming same-sex relationships and performing gay weddings. This question, this circumcision question, has become the latest litmus test in the church for separating the sheep from the goats. And I reject it outright. I reject it outright as a circumcision question. Christianity is not just um, the end of one circumcision question. Christianity is the end of all circumcision questions. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. He said, the Pauline question of whether circumcision was a condition for justification seems to me in present-day terms to be whether religion is a condition for salvation. Christianity is the end of all circumcision questions. So there are my, th my three main theological treatises or points for why I'm affirming. And obviously this is a very brief study. Um, we could spend an entire sermon on each one of those topics or even an entire class. Um, and again, I, I don't arrive at these conclusions haphazardly and get here overnight. It was a process of years of both study and, and dialogue, and relationships with others. And I want to emphasize that. You know, if, if, our, if the theologies we're coming up with aren't, come, aren't being formed and reformed out of dialogue and relationships with others, then I think it's kind of dangerous. And what happens when we come up and, and develop these theologies in isolation, you know, the, and when we're insulated from relationships with those who disagree with us, those, those theologies can be very oppressive and violent ideas, as we see. And as I'm speaking from personal experience, and so it's important that we 
engage with those we disagree with. It's important that we listen to those we disagree with. How do we grow and learn anything if we're not doing that, right? But we need to do this and have this conversation with grace and humility. At GCN, uh, I think it was two years ago in uh, in Chicago, uh, somebody had a great analogy for how we should have this conversation. We can either have it, as they put it, the Malcolm X way or the Martin Luther King Jr. way. Now, this is somewhat of an unfair analogy, but bear with me. It makes sense. You know, the Malcolm X way is, you know, take no prisoners. Let's destroy the opposition, right? The, Malcolm X, the, the Martin Luther King Jr. way is this idea of let's change hearts and minds with grace, with love, with humility. Let's practice civil discourse and respectful disagreement and let the chips fall where they may. But let's, let's trust in love. Let's trust in grace. And I think the MLK way of discussion for, the, for this topic is really the, the way closest to Christ. And so I would encourage us to go about it in that fashion. Let's pray. Father, we desire to be your people, people that reflect the character, the love and grace of Christ, your character. This boundless, unconditional love that we see in Jesus. Shape us and mold us in this area with each other as we are immersed in this conversation that is often so divisive and hurtful and damaging. Give us a vision for what it means to disagree, to love each other, to find ways of caring for each other, even in the midst of disagreement. Give us, give us your heart for each other, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.